Hello, my friends. Welcome, welcome to PM Landscape today. In PM Landscape, we take a look at topics from the PMBOK guide, try to make more sense out of them to make them easier. So today, we're talking about the topic of the team. You do know that this is under the resource management knowledge area in the sixth edition and under the team performance domain in the seventh edition. Team is big on the exam because as the saying goes, teamwork makes a dream work. In order to get from point A to point B on any project, you need a team. The question is, how good is the team? Are you building the team? Are you equipping the team? And how does a team find the conditions on the project? Do they have an atmosphere of trust? Do they have an atmosphere of freedom in order to self-lead and self-manage as necessary? So let's break down this area very quick. If we're talking about this from the perspective of the resource management knowledge area in the sixth edition, there's certain things you've got to think about. First of all, you need a plan. So we call it plan resource management. You need a plan for how to manage any resources. Now, unfortunately, in the sixth edition, we still refer to resources, human resources, It's not really nice to call people resources, but that's the way it is in the sixth edition. We also have equipment resources. We also have material resources. And we also have supplies. All of these are referred to as resources. Now, the human part is really what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on the team element Now, after you've planned resource management, the next thing that you do in this aspect is to estimate how many resources you need. We call it estimate activity resources. This is where you think of how many and how much you need of a resource, right? Again, we also use the term to refer to people as well as equipment, material supply. So how many, how much, what skill level, all that stuff. After you've done this planning stuff, you now move into the executing. And the first thing that you do in the executing aspect is you acquire. You acquire the resources. So human equipment, material supplies, facilities, you acquire the resources. They become assigned to the team. And the next thing that happens is you develop them, you train them, you coach them, you mentor them, you equip them. We call this develop team. Now we see the word team, okay? This is where you get the team members to be the best version of themselves for the sake of the project so that they can do the work to the best of their ability. After develop team, the next thing you think about is the actual leadership of the team. In the sixth edition, it's called manage team. Now, I often say we lead people, we manage things. But in this instance, we call it manage team. Manage team is where you would give the team feedback as far as how they are performing. This is where you give them encouragement and you kind of help them get back on track as far as This is what we're going to do next for your training, the last training you went through, the last equipping or the last 
uh, synergies we try to build through an offsite meeting. It didn't really work. So we're going to do this again. Whatever feedback you need to give the team, you give it to the team here. The last thing that happens in resources in the sixth edition is you control the resources. Now, I do want to point out that this is not people. This is more of the physical resources, okay? So when we talk about control resources, we're talking about the equipment, supplies, facilities, not the people, right? We don't control people. It's very important to remember that. Now, let's jump into some other aspects regarding the team, specifically how we build the team and get them to be the best version of themselves. The first thing you want to understand here is that there's a strong connection between the team and the topic of leadership. What exactly is leadership? It's many things to different people, but one thing leadership is that resonates across all the definitions is influence. In the words of John Maxwell, the true measure of leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. In order to lead, you need to be influencing. And if you're not influencing, you're really not leading because that's what it is. Leadership and influence go hand in hand. You've got great leaders. You've got poor leaders. You've got some really bad evil leaders in the world, right, who influence people to do crazy things in a bad way. But leadership is really influence with great leaders on the good side and horrible leaders that have made really horrible things happen, <clears throat> the likes of, of Hitler and so on. So when you think about leadership, you got to bolt it on to influence. So let's talk about project team management, if you will. Imagine the team and, and leadership and how that works. Project management. It's all about applying knowledge. So when you think about being a PM, you got to think about applying knowledge. you got to think about applying skills, tools, and techniques. But you also need to think about applying leadership. In other words, you as a project manager, you're going to be leading without authority. Think about it. The people who you work with on the project, are they your subordinates? In some instances, they could be. But in many instances, they could be higher up than one in the organization. So leadership activities focuses on people. Leadership is all about influencing. It's all about motivating people into action. It's all about enabling others to act in the way they need to. Now, when we talk about leadership in the world of project management, we could look at leadership in this way. The first part of leadership, we could say this is centralized management and leadership. And centralized is all around one central figure. Usually you see a PM and the PM is in charge and everyone looks at the PM as the leader, right? So while leadership should be practiced by all project team members, management activities could be centralized or they could be distributed. So centralized is all around the PM. We could also have a distributed approach. And distributed leadership means 
It is all about the team. The team has a collective ownership of responsibility, of the management, of the leadership. Sometimes project management activities, when shared in this way, give you a much better payoff. Now, as we talk about leadership, you got to understand the PMI love the topic of servant leadership. It's big. Servant leadership is a style of leadership, and it focuses on addressing the needs of the team, asking the question, what can I do to help you? How can I help you get to that next level? Are you growing as an individual on the team? Are you becoming healthier? Are team members likely to become servant leaders themselves? And what is blocking you? Let me remove these obstacles for you. Another key thing about leadership in the context of servant leadership, I call it a roadblock. Remover and also being a diversion shield. In other words, you are going to remove distractions that come to the team. So a diversion shield just means when people are bringing matters and requirements and requests that are really not anything that the team should be doing at that time, the diversion shield leader knows how to cut out the crud and say, hey, no, team is focused. I'm going to protect the team from internal distractions, external distractions that redirect the team from current activities, current objectives. You know, So shielding the team from non-critical, uh, laborious external demands, it helps the team stay focused. Another big thing about servant leadership is encouragement. You want to encourage the team in whatever they're going through. It's that understanding that every project that we work on has ups and downs, peaks and valleys, and sometimes the team just needs to be pumped. So leadership, you got to remember, we got centralized around a central figure. In Agile, we subscribe more towards a distributed approach to leadership. So with that understanding of leadership and servant leadership, for your exam, it's also important for you to understand what leaders do on projects. So whatever the title, this is what you would expect. I'll just call them expectations of what a leader is supposed to do, whether you want to define them as just a leader, servant leader, whatever. But the big one in the world of the PMP is vision. And you know where you can get this vision from? If you take a look at your project charter, you will understand, you should understand what the vision is. So the vision and the objectives should be well captured in a document, such as the project charter. The leader should also work in making it clear, or the leaders, right, ensure that the team members understand the roles and responsibilities. Now, there are many tools that you can use for this. For your exam in particular, you do need to understand 
the responsibility assignment matrix, we call it the RAM, you also should endeavor to understand a type of RAM known as the RACI chart, responsible, accountable, consult, and inform. And it just makes it clearer what each person on the team is meant to be doing. Responsible, what they're responsible for, accountable, who is accountable. In other words, ultimately answerable. This A right here is a wild card for some questions that makes the questions a little bit tricky. In a RAM or RACI, when you go in particular to the RACI chart, which is a type of RAM, you got to understand that A, accountable should only appear once per task. You should only have one person that is ultimately answerable to what is going on. In addition to roles and responsibilities, it should also be very clear where the team can seek this guidance for growth and anything else on the project. It should be very clear where the team can seek guidance. And guidance can be directed to the overall project team to keep everyone headed in the right direction. When we talk about guidance, some additional roles might come to mind. Stakeholders, and those who are key stakeholders could in particular help with the guidance. We could have roles and accountability such as the product owner who can help guide the team as far as what exactly a user story means, what the purpose of the story is, the value that it brings. When it comes to growth, a lot of agile teams look inward for growth as far as technical abilities. We have something called a skills marketplace. But when we talk about traditional projects, a lot of times that growth could come from outside of the team that individual is working on, because remember, it's a different kind of team. And then anything else, the key thing is people need to know where to go for this kind of guidance and growth. So when project teams form across different organizations based on a contract, strategic partnership, or other business relationship, specific roles that perform various functions may be more formalized and less flexible. On your exam, you always need to ask yourself at all times, what kind of project am I on? Am I in an agile realm? In the world of agile, teams work very differently. Remember, in the world of agile, our goal is to keep the team together. One of the things that we talk about in preparation for the exam is called Tuckman's Ladder or the five stages of team development. The five stages, which you might have heard about, just show how a team passes through stages, forming, storming, norming, performing, and when your team gets to performing, when your team is functioning as a well-oiled unit, please keep them there. Why would you take out a team that is performing as a well-oiled unit? Why would you allow the team break up? 
You don't want that. And that's why the performance stage, that's like the pinnacle. That's the height of synergy. You don't want the team to disband. Unfortunately, on traditional projects, when a team has been together for a project coming from different organizations or different business units, a time comes when there is a journey. This we do not like, especially in the world of Agile. We don't like this because if a team disbands, think about all that you've invested in the team, having to do that all over again. What a waste of time. That is no good. So regarding teams going through the five stages of team development and so on, there's some associated topics you need to know for your exam. You need to understand team contract. And a team contract is really a team charter that spells out good behaviors, bad behaviors, acceptable behaviors, what the definition of ready means, what the definition of done means, how to resolve conflict, and so on. So you hear it being referred to as team contract, or you hear it being referred to as social contract, or you could hear it being referred to as team agreements. All of these are terms used interchangeably. And of course, ground rules is another term associated with this because you expect to find ground rules in these. But don't forget in the world of Agile, the Agile Practice Guide, page 50, and also page 49 is a good one to read. These will give you some more inkling and insights into the concept of a charter for the team to understand the vision and the concept of team contracts, social contract, team agreements, ground rules, all that stuff, group norms and the rest. So for your exam, we need to understand each project team develops its own culture. The project team's culture may be established by developing group norms, team norms, or informally through behaviors and actions of its team members. The project team culture operates within the organization culture. So just remember that within the organization, you have teams and each team has its culture. But when all is said and done, the culture will map back to the overarching organizational culture. Some other very important things for effective teams, if you want your team to be very successful, and you should know this for your exam, the key words we talk about, we want a team with transparency. Transparency. We want a team with integrity, where the individual members are honest, they're truthful, they don't tell half-truth. We want a team that respects each other. This maps back to the Scrum values, which I hope you know a little bit about, and also the Agile manifesto values and principles, a lot of it interweaves. Keeping things positive, right? A positive discourse, you want things to be positive. When you're having dialogue with the team, you want the team to understand that they support. You want the team to also have the courage, which is again, another scrum value, if you, again, should read the values of Scrum. So we talk about courage, we talk about focus, and things such as that. 
we also want to have a mindset of celebration of success. We got to celebrate the wins. It's a mindset. You win, I win, we win. Focusing on project goals, challenges, and issues, they could sideline the fact that team members and the team as a whole are steadily progressing towards the goal. We want to keep our mind on celebrating the small wins. All right. Now, how do you get a high performing team? And all is said and done, a high performing team, which I will call an HPT, is one in which you have openness, open communication. Right. We use things like an information radiator and as much transparency as possible to promote open communication. We also want a shared understanding, shared understanding, shared ownership. We want to build trust. We want to collaborate, have a mindset of collaboration, even with our stakeholders. It helps, right? Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. That needs to be our mindset. We also want a team that is adaptable that can bounce back, a team that is resilient, a team that is empowered. An empowered team gets a lot done. The project team members who feel empowered to make decisions about the way they work, they perform better than those who are micromanaged. You know, my mentor, John Maxwell, he says, only secure leaders give power to others. But another benefit is those who give power to others benefit directly in that the people you've given power to are going to deliver better product, better ideas. They're going to own it. You're going to see a difference in how that team performs. Let's talk about leadership skills, which is another topic that you need for your test. Understanding the concept of leadership skills. I often say the tough stuff is a soft stuff. The soft stuff, the squishy leadership stuff that we talk about, that's the tough stuff for your exam, really. And leadership skills are useful for project team members, whether the project team is operating in a centralized environment or shared leadership environment. When we talk about skills, one of the big things is casting the vision. Casting the vision and establishing and sustaining. Sustaining the vision is so important. The good book says where there's no vision, the people perish. We constantly need to reinforce vision. What is the project purpose? How do we know we are succeeding? What is success to us? How do we know that as a team, we're knocking it out of the park? Teams need guidance and constant reminders as well, as far as how they're performing. How will the project team know that it's drifting from its mission, its vision? And what is the best outcome, right? A good vision needs to be clear, concise, and accountable. Clear concise and accountable and a good vision inspires passion for the outcome because a lot of times you have individuals working on projects and no one really knows why they're doing what they're doing the team should know why they're doing what they're doing 
another key skill is critical thinking. When we talk about critical thinking, we mean applying deliberate, intentional thought through a process to carry out your research, to resolve problems, to identify biases, to analyze data, to look for patterns. You know, so instead of just thinking randomly, this is some real intentional thought that the team undertakes as they approach problems, as they brainstorm for problems, as they try to solve problems. So we talk about identifying and articulating what is false, being able to identify this is a false premise. This is a false analogy. Being able to see a problem and solve a problem in a methodical, thoughtful manner. Throughout the various project performance domains talked about by the PMI, there's a need to recognize biases, to identify the root cause of problems, and to consider challenging issues such as ambiguity, complexity, and all that. Critical thinking helps you to do that. Critical thinking includes disciplined, rational, logical, evidence-based thinking. And it does require an open mind. The next one you need here is motivation. Motivation is key for leadership. The great Zig Ziglar said, don't tell me you don't need motivation daily. You take a bath daily, right? So you need daily motivation. It's like taking a bath. Motivating team members has two aspects. And the first is what motivates? That is a question every central leader should ask. What motivates my team? That needs to be the first thing to ask. And then when you understand what motivates your team, you could ask the question, is it intrinsic or is it extrinsic? In other words, are team members intrinsically motivated by the work that is being done? Or are they motivated by some external source like money or rewards? And the honest truth is a lot of individuals are motivated by both. There's a component of motivation intrinsically and some from extrinsic. And it's very clear in the work of Herzberg and his hygiene factors And he shows that for even those people who might be intrinsically motivated, if you take away the basics, what we would consider to be the hygiene factors, such as salary, if you take those very basic things away, they could be demotivated. So when you're taking a look at motivation, also understand what demotivates people. Examples of intrinsic motivation, in particular, are things like achievement, a good old challenge, belief in the work, making a difference, responsibility, self-direction, giving autonomy to people, personal growth, relatedness, and being part of a team, being in a healthy environment. Those are all nice things. When we talk about extrinsic motivation, we talk about rewards, money, and things such as that. 
And to be quite honest, there's absolutely nothing wrong in being extrinsically motivated, right? Some people are not motivated by the journey to getting PMP certified. They are motivated by the certificate, and that's okay. Some people are motivated because they are learning and they are growing. So which one are you? Are you motivated to continue this journey because you love the content? Or do you really just, let me just get certified and move on, you know, and it's okay. The next thing we're talking about here is a concept of interpersonal skills. Interpersonal skills. And the first interpersonal skill that I'm going to emphasize here is EI, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence in a a nutshell is understanding one's emotions and being able to bridle one's emotions and understanding the emotions of others and being able to influence the emotions of others. So it's twofold. One is about you, understanding your environment, understanding your feelings, and the other is about a team, the other individuals. So you could think about it like this. You could think about this region at the top as being all about you, self. The second region, you can see this as being about social. We talk about self, self self-awareness. Are you in touch with your emotions? Or is there going to be an outburst where you do something crazy? Where you might sock someone in the face and the whole world is watching and is shocked. That is all about emotional intelligence, where you're self-aware. And you know, I need to make an exit here. Otherwise, I'm going to do something crazy right now. That's self-awareness, right? Being aware of yourself and then taking action to manage your emotions. Self-management, right? Self-management is thinking before you act building trust. Self-awareness is about being aware. How do I affect the team and how does the team affect me? When we talk about the social piece, we have social awareness. And social awareness in this context is all about being empathetic and employing active listening. When we talk about active listening, we talk about two types of listening or two types of listeners. You could be a listener who leans into the conversation. You could have a supportive response to a speaker, or you could have a shift response, taking away attention from the speaker to yourself. The speaker says, I was caught up in traffic. And before the speaker can even finish speaking, You say, yeah, I was caught up in traffic too. My journey was laborious. Well, that is a shift response. 
So social awareness is all about being empathetic and active listening. We want to be in the moment. We want to let them finish. We want to really let their message uh, sink in. And sometimes it just has to do with letting people know that they are being heard. When we talk about the social piece on the far right, we're talking about social skills. And when we say social skill, we're talking about being able to establish rapport, building effective teams, and management of attitude, okay? Social skill is the culmination of the other dimensions of emotional intelligence. And it's concerned with managing groups of people. You could also think about it like this, leading groups of people, because the word management for people is not the best, even though the PMI use it a lot, right? So it's more concerned with leading and influencing groups of people, project teams, building social networks, finding common grounds with various stakeholders and building rapport. So self-awareness and self-management are required to remain calm, to remain productive, even under difficult circumstances. Social awareness and social skills allow for better bonds with project team members. And honestly, that is a very important part of any project because you're working with individuals to get things done together. All right, let's talk about the next big thing. So if you just come in, we have been talking about leadership and we've been talking about skills that you need. We just got done talking about the interpersonal piece under EI. And now we're talking about decision-making. Decision-making is a key skill that every leader should have, right? Project managers and project teams make decisions daily. So this is the job of the project manager in this realm of your PMP exam to be aware of the decision-making responsibilities of one, the team, and also the project manager, team facilitator, whatever you want to call them. The project managers of project teams, project personnel, they make many decisions, and some decisions may be fairly inconsequential. You know, things such as where to go for a team lunch, and others could be very impactful, such as what development approach to use, what tool to use. Now, you take a look at your content outline, one of the very first tasks you see is execute the project with urgency to deliver business value. But the question is how? Are we using iterative, incremental, predictive, or agile? And that's a big decision. That's an example of a big decision. Some decisions are going to be unilateral. One person decides, you know what? That's it. That's what we're going to do. And this has an advantage of being fast, but it's prone to error when compared to engaging the wisdom of a diverse set of people. Have you ever had to make a decision and you thought you knew what to do until you asked the team and the teamwork made the dream work? You found an even better way? Never underestimate the power of a team. Group-based decision-making 
it has the benefit of tapping into broad knowledge base from a, from a group of individuals. Your team will shock you. I tell you, you ask your team, you give your team a challenge, they'll shock you. That's how you can tell great leadership when the teamwork is more than what the leader thinks, right? Teamwork makes a dream work each and every time. So we don't make decisions by saying everyone has to agree. We could make decisions on a spectrum, right? Of absolute agreement all the way to veto. Very similar to the Highsmith decision spectrum. And somewhere along these bands, you've got different levels, right? All the way from an absolute no to an absolute yes. And we're not saying everyone has to be in the yes zone. We're not saying everyone needs to be here. No, you could have some distribution, right? You could have distribution. But if we see tendency of convergence, you can, you can see where the convergence is, right? There's some in this region, but there's a general tendency towards convergence. What you should do as a great leader is ask the question. For those who are the outliers, you can ask, why do you say that? Not in a bad way, but to really understand their perspective. Because sometimes certain team members have insights that no one else has. And it's important to understand their perspective. The next one in this assortment of skills we're looking at is conflict management. Conflict is going to be big on your exam. I could probably guess you have at least two or three questions around conflict. Conflicts happen on all projects. We should expect conflict. We shouldn't look at conflict as being negative. We could have constructive conflict. Key things in conflict when you're tackling conflict. Big one is respect. Keep things respectful. The other one is to focus on the issues, not the person. Contrary to what a lot of people say, conflict, the major causes of conflict, it doesn't have to do primarily, I didn't say at all, primarily with personality. It doesn't. A lot of times, it's other things. So we want to focus on the issue, not the person, not the people. Conflict is based on people perceiving situations differently, and it doesn't have to be personal. We also want to keep things in the present. Think about the now, right? Keep it it in the present. Don't think about the past, right? Keep it in the present. Think about where you're going, the future outcomes you want. And one of the key approaches to resolving conflict is collaboration. We want to collaborate as much as possible. People call it problem solving. We want to collaborate. And there are different models for addressing conflict. The most popular one is a Thomas Kilman mode instrument. Really important one. All right, let's go on to another topic here, which is leadership styles. Leadership styles. All right, so there are various styles of leadership, okay? As with all aspects of the project, leadership style should be tailored.
to meet the needs of the project, the environment and the stakeholders. And some of the variables that influence tailoring of the leadership styles could be experience with that type of the project. Firms and project teams with experience in a particular type of project may be more self-managing. You've got experience. There's no need to direct people as much, right? So depending on if you have experience in a type of project or not, that could influence your leadership style to be more directing as opposed to a more lazy, fair or delegating style where there's a lot of experience. Right, so a lot, lot of experience, lazy, fair, less experience, going to be directing. We also have the maturity of team members. Some teams have, unfortunately, immature team members, and when you have an immature team, you find the leader having to do a lot more. You could call it babysitting, a lot more babysitting. So it depends on the maturity of the team. You could actually be working on a project with not as much experience, but a very mature team that is able to find things out, do research, come out with solutions, right? So you got to look at those variables. The third one is the organizational governance structure. And what is governance? It's the framework within which authorities exercise. So depending on the governance structure, framework in the organization, you could have that influence in how leaders lead, right? Projects operate within a larger organizational system. There may be an expectation that the organizational leadership style of top management is recognized, and it could be reflected in the team's leadership. In a lot of instances, the organizational structure influences the degree to which authority and accountability are centralized or distributed. So you've got to keep your eye on, you know, when you're a project manager in a firm, the way leadership leads, it could impact. Not saying it's entirely good, especially if it's draconian micromanaging rule. You've got to ask yourself as a new PM in those kind of organizations, what kind of a leader do I want to be? You know, but unfortunately, there's usually a drip from the top down, right? But on, on a more positive sense, we want to ensure that people can collaborate, people have open channels, we want to have a project team site, if we could, to have relevant project and, and team information available. We want to use audio and video capabilities for meetings, technologies, and so on. These are just some of the things that we need to be thinking about when we uh, talk about the next topic. So beyond the structure of the organization, we also want to look at our team. Are they co-located? Are they geographically dispersed? If so, then we want to make sure that people can collaborate. Like I said, they have a team site, they have technology to, to use, to stay connected and things like that. Now, when we talk about this third aspect, the governance and the structure, this is where we should focus a little bit more on the Hersey-Blanchard model, because we have 
four possibilities. As a leader, you could choose to be very supportive of people or you could choose to be very directing. I should say, and you could. So you could choose to be very supporting and very directing. You could choose to be less directing and less supporting. So it really depends. I'll give you a few illustrations. Someone joins the firm and they're extremely eager. They do not need a whole lot of support. They don't need you to give them a lot of motivation. They're super motivated, but they don't know the job. These individuals, you may need to use a more directing approach with them. You don't give them a whole lot of support, but you give them a whole lot of direction. Then you could have individuals who come into the firm. They're working on pretty specialized knowledge, but they don't have a whole lot of experience. Maybe they're out of college. They don't have a whole lot of experience. And at the same time, they're not very confident in the job. For someone who you need to be more directing with and more supporting with than you would for others, you could look at this as a coaching approach, right? So the difference between directing and coaching is the folks in coaching, they need a lot of direction, but probably not as much as the people in the direct quadrant, but they need a whole lot of support. Coaching is where you see a lot of direction and a lot of support. Now think about someone who may have been in the firm for 10 years and they get to a point in their career, they're given more responsibilities, but there's a lull and they don't feel as motivated or as encouraged. For individuals like this, they know what to do. You don't need to direct them. You just need to give them a lot of support. This approach, we call it supporting. Okay, that's supporting leadership. Give them a whole lot of support. They don't need direction. They know what to do. There's a lull. They're mentally discouraged or they feel incapable, but they know the job. That's supporting. Last but not least, we have one more quadrant. I will just refer to this as delegating. In the delegating quadrant here, we have individuals who are very capable and very motivated and they don't need any, or as much, I should say, direction. They don't need as much support. They may need some occasionally. That's not to say they never need any, but they need very little support and very little directing. This is known as the Hersey Blanchard model. And I've talked about this on the channel before. You should be able to find more videos on the Hersey Blanchard model, Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard and rest uh, Paul Hersey. So great duo, great model. The idea about this model is depending 
on the circumstances of the project. People could be anywhere, depending on the individuals, depending on the circumstances. And you as a great leader should know when to employ each one of these. That's the summary about this, okay? You'll find this talked about in the Pembroke Guide, but a little bit differently. Not, not, and not in the sixth, but more in the seventh. Uh, but again, check the videos on this channel. All right. Now, to round this up, let's talk about how do you know indicators of success? successful team leadership. How do you know? And we're talking about whether it's centralized or whether it's decentralized. How do you know that? Yeah, we've done a really good job with this. You know, you've done a great job when you see traits of shared ownership. When everyone on the team knows this is ours, this is not about me. This is about everyone. All project team members know the vision. They know the objectives. And they own the deliverables. They own the outcome together. The next indicator is a high-performing team. High-performing team is one that is collaborating. The, the synergies are high. The team feels empowered. They empower other team members who may feel discouraged or incapable or unable. There's that mutual accountability and mutual support. And last but not least, applicable leadership and other interpersonal skills are demonstrated. Team members are leaders themselves, right? They apply critical thinking, interpersonal skills. There's team member involvement. Team member leadership styles are appropriate to the project and the environment. You got to remember, my friends, for your exam, you could be tested on any of these concepts. They're not difficult, right? These concepts aren't hard, but they're concepts that you definitely want to keep in the back of your mind as you approach questions, right? Because it, it is a lot of stuff. You see from the, the place we started this journey, you know, right from the beginning, we talked about quite a number of things. See this? So I would advise you to watch this again, okay? And understand the little nuances of, what we've talked about in this team landscape. Also recall that a lot of what I've shared is from the Pembroke Guide 6th edition, but more of what I shared is from the 7th edition. The idea is to share content with you that almost prevents you from having to open the book because <laughs> I don't want you freaking out over reading another 30, 40 pages, right? What I covered is roughly 15 pages plus another, say, three or four pages from the sixth edition. 
So we've covered about 20 pages so far. But I hope this gives you some context for teams. The idea is to get you thinking in the right direction, not to cram stuff, but to get you thinking about the possibilities and what the project manager does. All right. I hope you found this to be useful. Don't forget to hit like, subscribe, share with your friends. If you've got any questions, put them below. Bye for now. Oh, and one more thing. I should make it very clear that for those of you who are struggling in some way with your PMP prep and you need a boost, you need to go on down to hpmexam.com because every Sunday, hpmexam.com, we cover everything you need to know for the PMP exam very rapidly in four hours. It puts you on the right track. It realigns you. It redirects you. You will not find another course like this one at hpmexam.com. So if you are struggling with your PMP prep, you're disillusioned, you're like, Phil, yeah, this was a good episode, but I need more and I need it quick. You need to go on down to hpmexam.com. We'll get you in ship shape. All right. Thank you once again and talk to you soon. Bye for now.